Hope you all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, look in the underneath you. If you don't have one, grab one of those little blue and white ones. And that's yours forever. You can keep it. Uh, if you have one at home, you can keep that and give it to someone. We, we buy these for you to be able to take them and give them away to people. So uh, if it helps, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is page 1174 in my Bible. Uh, don't know that's going to help you at all, but that's what it is on mine. So uh, uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 1. We started the book of Ephesians last week. Uh, and so as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, uh, largely we're actually going through the book of Acts. So as we've been going through the book of Acts, um, as Paul plants a church in one of the cities, we kind of take a break from going through the big book of Acts and go look at one of the letters. So when Paul planted the church in Corinth, we saw that kind of happen. We went and we studied 1 Corinthians and then uh, we came back to the book of Acts and we saw Paul plant the church in Acts 19 uh, and then 20. He did a little bit and then 21. He has that last meeting with the elders of, uh, of Ephesus out at Miletus. He's, he's going by, he stops in Miletus, he calls them out, he talks to them about what's going on, and he sends them back. And so when we finished that part in Acts, we came over here to the book of Ephesians. Now, in Paul's life, what he does is he finishes that third missionary journey and goes back to Jerusalem, delivers the money to gift to, uh, to those that are poor. He's eventually arrested for his faith, and he's sent far west, back all the way to Rome. And as he's in Rome, he's remember, in jail, he's remembering the Ephesians that he spent three years with, uh, that he loved them and cared for them and wants to know what's going on with them and their hearts and souls. <clears throat> and so he gets, while he's in jail, he gets some pen, ink or whatever, and he, he writes down this letter for them, the entire letter of the Ephesians, uh, while in jail after he'd finished his third missionary journey. So as we're reading this, this is, this is a couple years after he had planted the church in Ephesus, but nevertheless, he's writing this to him. And as we, as we saw last week, in case you weren't here, the, the letter to the Ephesians is really kind of two big picture sections. Um, you can go ahead and put that up. The first section is chapters one through three, and it's our position in Christ. So he wants them to understand the good news of the gospel and who they are, where they are, uh, what justification has done in their life, who we are in Christ. And the, he, the way he does that in chapters one through three, you can see in chapter one and into chapter two, he talks about our new life in Christ. And then the end of chapter two and into chapter three, our new community in Christ. And that second side is where he talks about Jews and Gentiles now being one. So our position in Christ is that we are, um, we are seated in the heavenlies. We are, we are justified. We are adopted as children. We are, um, from eternity past, been chosen in him. And this is who we are now, all Jews and Gentiles, etc. He, he, before you get to what that looks like, before you get to how I'm supposed to live that out in chapters 1 through 3, all he wants you to know is who you are. If you reverse the two and you talk about what we need to do, then you'll, you'll never get to who we are and you'll just not know how to live. So he wants to be sure that we understand who we are in Christ in chapters 1 through 3. And then he gets into chapters 4 through 5, 4, 5, and 6. And he talks about, you can see, our practice. How do we live? Uh, what does it look like in the church in Ephesians 4? What does marriage look like uh, in, in Ephesians 5, etc.? So he, he talks about our unity, purity, submissive, stability, etc. So he talks about what it looks like to be, uh, have this position in Christ. So if you, you know, for thinking about it really easily, chapters 1 through 3 is about our justification. Chapters 4 through 6 is about our sanctification. What does it look like? So uh, that's what the big picture is. So we are in chapter 1, still talking about our position in Christ. And so last week, when we looked at chapters, uh, ch the first half of chapter one, one of the things I wanted to point out that the, that Paul, the writer, and therefore the Holy Spirit is trying to evoke out of us is praise. If you look at verse three, he says, blessed 
be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's starting by trying to help you see everything that you're going to see is supposed to cause you to want to bless Jesus. And then, as we looked at it, uh, if you remember, uh, he talks about the good news of the gospel and he couches it in the Trinitarian language when he talks about what the Father's work has done, what the Son's work has done in our redemption, and what the Holy Spirit's work has done, and uh, uh, giving us this sealing. And so, S S S E. A-L, not, you know, sealing, C-I. But anyway, so he talks about what the, the Trinitarian work in our salvation. And as he finishes each one of those things, he has this refrain of, you can see in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Or as he finishes in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Or as he finishes verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So as he finishes the Father's work, to the praise of his glorious grace. As he finishes the Son's redemption, to the praise of his glory. As he finishes the Holy Spirit's work to the praise of his glory. So what we saw from the first half of chapter one, that the main driver of Paul is trying to do as he's telling us about the gospel, as he's telling us about our predestination, our adoption and all, and our redemption and all these things is that he's trying to evoke from us blessing. He's trying to evoke for us the idea that we're supposed to praise God. So if the first half of chapter one is about praising God, the second half is about prayers to God. So you'll see that as we look at, at, at verse 15, uh, the first thing he says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So what we're going to look at in verses 15 through 23 today are these, uh, this prayer that Paul outlines in, a, in some kind of fashion, or at least the contents of his prayers. It's not like chapter 3 where it's the specific written out prayer. This is chapter 1 where he says, this is what my prayers look like for you. So we're going to see three things. We'll do that in a second. But the first thing I want to do is read the text. Here at Remedy, if you're able, we'd love for you to stand and, and as we read. Uh, just a way to honor God's word, you can go ahead and stand. And as we read it, out after I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And as you say, thanks be to God, you're doing two things, really. You're, you're, first, you're thanking the Lord God that he would give us his word. I mean, in his abundant kindness and graciousness, he did not have to speak, and yet he did. He spoke to us his word. But also, a second thing, as you say, thanks be to God, you're, you're signaling in your own heart to the Holy Spirit, the things that you say, the things that you teach, I want to say yes to. I want to obey them. I want to, I want to do these things. So just know as you say, thanks be to God, you're, you're thanking the Lord and um, you're saying, yes, let me obey. So verse 15, for this reason, and that's, the gospel in verses 1 through 14. Um, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious grace in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and all dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head of over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all, it's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Ask for the Lord's help this morning. God, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we beg your presence to teach us and to guide us into all truth. I pray for me and everyone here that we would hear your word and receive it. 
and that it would strengthen our faith, that we would have a deep desire to want to glorify Jesus with our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray for myself that you would help me uh, have clarity, clarity of mind, clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that as I preach, Lord, everyone would be able to understand uh, clearly what it is that you are speaking to them today. We, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, what Paul is doing here is outlining for us some things that he prays for when he prays for the Ephesians. So why would we want to pray for someone else when we already have tons of problems ourselves? <laughs> what would be the thing that would make Paul say, I need to pray for you rather than just think about himself and pray for himself? Sinclair Ferguson says this, the adoration of the Lord in his grace always led Paul to intercede for us brothers and sisters. So the reason why you would feel compelled to pray for other people is because you adore the Lord Jesus Christ. You adore him. And since you adore him, you understand the absolute necessity for you to want to pray for others and you feel compelled to pray for other people. Now, uh, if you're wanting the easy outline, there'll, there'll be an outline here and it's super wordy. But if you want the easy outline, right? Here's the easy outline. It won't even be on the screen. There's three components to this prayer that Paul is going to say. It's basically this. It's, thanks for what you've done. Help me know you more about, help me know more about that. Thank you for Jesus. It's that simple. Thank you for what you've done. Help me know that even more. Thank you for Jesus. That's the simple outline. Now, I'm going to have, you know, flowery, wordy ways to say that. But that's the easy, that's the easy way, right? That's the easy uh, understanding of it. So let's look at that first one. It's in verse 15 and 16. The thank you for what you've done. This is thanking God for the evidences of grace in his people. Number one, thanking God for the evidences of grace in his people. Number one, put up number one. She's playing peekaboo with the baby. Number one, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So Paul's knows the evidences of God's grace in this, in this church in Ephesus, and he never ceases to give thanks for you, remembering in, in, you in my prayers. Now, remember, Paul spent three years with these people. Three years. This is a very long time to be with someone. You know, a thousand days or so, being with them in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, praying like crazy that they would meet Jesus, praying like crazy that they would grow in their walk, preaching the gospel to them on your own dime. Remember, he would rent out the hall and preach uh, from 11 to 4 every afternoon. So he spent three years in Ephesus pouring his heart and soul out for these people. And so he knows the intimacies of their needs. And he understands and knows the, the graces that the Lord has, has given them. And he prays and thanks God for the evidences of grace in, their peop- in, this, in these people. He says, I do not give, cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And as he does that, as he remembers them, he mentions two hallmarks of his prayers that, that give evidence to authentic Christianity. So when he's talking about the evidences of grace and he prays for them, he says there's, there's two things that make up an authentic Christian. There's two hallmarks that make up the authentic Christian that I remember that happened in your life and I'm thankful for. You can see them both there in the very first verse. First, they have faith in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And second, they have love for the saints. They have love for the saints. You can see those in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints. So those are the two hallmarks of authentic Christianity. If, if we're wanting to just brass tacks, like what's a Christian? What is it? It's these two things. That you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
and that you also, because of that, have a love for all the saints. So what do we mean by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? We don't mean faith that Jesus lived. We don't mean that we believe that there's a guy named Jesus that lived. We don't, we don't just merely mean that I think that he lived and he died and he resurrected. Instead, we're talking more about than that. So even as Paul alluded to it in just the previous section last week, we saw it in verse 13. In him, you also, verse 13, when you heard the word of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, you heard it, you believed. Now, remember in the Greek, b- believe and faith is the same word. Pistos. It's the same word. And so you believed in him in such a way, not that he exists, but you believe in him such a way that you say, Jesus is the substitute for me. Jesus in my place. So I believe this. My faith is not that he just existed, but instead we say their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We mean I am right now. My only hope is active trust in the fact that Jesus is the one who took my place on the cross and I am putting all my hope and banking all of my thing in that, that Jesus in my place now for my salvation. So all of his filthiness, I mean, all of my filthiness and all of my sin was put on Jesus and now he became sin and all of his perfection and righteousness and innocence was therefore given to me. That's my only hope. Faith in the Lord Jesus means that it's Jesus in my place, active trust as Jesus as my substitute on the cross for me. That's the first thing. Hallmark of authentic Christianity. We have to have an authentic belief in the gospel. Or those that have been adopted have been predestined. And when they heard this message, they trusted in Christ. But also, we see an, uh, the second uh, hallmark of authentic Christianity. Or the second big picture thing that Paul prays for. Which is the evidences of God's grace and his people. I always point here because I think you can see that TV. And I know that you can't. It's these that you can see. Um, is... Love for the saints. Now, this is a core value at Remedy. We don't call it love for the saints. We call it care. Community mission, care. Nevertheless, same thing. This is a core value at Remedy. Huge. Huge for us. We believe that an authentic mark of a Christian is that you have care or love for the saints. Jesus says, John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So, We give evidence to Jesus' words when we love one another that they will know us and know that we're disciples. Put simply, is this. God's people should love God's people. As we discussed last week, uh, Paul alludes to this when he uses this adoption language. You can see in verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption. And so a lot of times when we talk about adoption, we, we are easy to focus on the vertical nature of this adoption, that God's our father and now we're sons and daughters of the king. But the adoption doesn't just carry the vertical nature with it. The adoption carries a horizontal aspect. Not only were we sons and daughters of the king, but we're now brothers and sisters of each other. And so we love one another because we have been adopted into the same family. And everybody here now is a brother and sister in Christ. And so we love the other saints because they are our family. So we care, community mission and care. We should absolutely care. And this is a hallmark of Christianity. This is a hallmark of a real Christian. So if we're thinking about the fact that we need to have evidences of God's grace in our own lives, and you notice I have the little and yourself because the the text is driving that this is three things that we pray for others and yourself. The Lord knows that we should be praying these things for ourselves, right? But the way the text is driving us, these are the things that Paul prays. For the Ephesian church. So you should be praying these things for your, your wife, your kids, your coworkers, your family, you know, whoever it is around. 
God, let them see and know the evidences of your grace in their life. Namely, that they would have faith in Jesus and love for the saints. That they would live a life characterized by that. But let's also remember, Lord, help me. Help me have these things. Help me be someone who characterizes these things in my own life. So ask yourself the question. Are you praying not only for others, but for yourself, that you're a gracious person? That you see the evidences of, God, of God's grace in people's lives. Not just the places that they need to grow all the time. You stink at this, you're bad at that, why don't you get better at this? Like, but also, not just growth, but grace. Look what the Lord has done in your life. This is amazing. God has been so gracious to do this in your life. Wow. And that you would pray that they would have more faith in Christ Jesus. Continue to trust Him. And, that, and also that they would have a continued growth of love for the saints. Do you pray for that? How often do you think about praying for that for your own spouse, your own children, and your own self? Now, let's just remember one thing, okay? We're going we're gonna to allude to this later. Actually, I'm, I'm going to allude to it now and actually talk about it in more depth later. So, Paul spent three years with these people, right? So, he knew the most intimate details of their lives. He knew what they needed. He knew the specific things he could pray for whenever he would pray for them. And yet... He doesn't list those specific things out. Johnny, Lord, Johnny needs to quit, you know, uh, hiccuping all the time. Or not hiccuping, whatever. Like, I'm just naming stuff. Like, Sarah has such a problem with her children. Lord, help Sarah's children. You know, whatever. He, he doesn't list out these specific things, right? Instead, he rises above the specific needs and says, God, help them understand the evidences of your grace in them, that they would have faith and love for the saints. That's the first thing that we see here is thankful for the evidences of grace and God's people. That's, thank you for what you've done. The next one is, help me see some more. I want to know more of it. So the second part of the prayer is in verses 17 through 20. Ask God for divine illumination. In other words, I want to see more of that. Thank you for what you've done. Help me see more. We call it divine illumination. Illumination is to shed light on something. It's illumined. So spiritually, Christianity, when we talk about uh, illumination, we mean God shedding light upon our hearts or illuminating our hearts so that we can now understand, know and understand God more. We can know and understand his truth more. And this is done specifically by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does this. And so we want to ask God for divine illumination. Sinclair Ferguson says, the church's needs were great here in the city of Ephesus and no doubt Remedy Church and in Rock Hill. What was the answer? Paul believed that is that they would know God. They needed more divine illumination. So let's be clear, let's be clear here, okay? Uh, when we say you need to know God, we're not saying that you need to have more of the Holy Spirit. When, the, when, when, when we're saved, we've received the Holy Spirit. He fills us with the Holy Spirit, right? We can ask for more filling, but he's not going to give us more God. We have all the God in us that we can get. So when we say, help me know you more, it's the finite in the infinite, and there's only so much we can know of him right now. But we can know more and more of him, not just here, but in heaven forever. There'll never be a time where you and I, the finite, have fully understand the, stood the infinite. We're like, okay, there's everything for me to know about God. When you get to heaven, you don't, like, because you're in heaven, say, I know everything there is to know about God now. No. There'll never come a time where you'll ever understand everything. But he's not withholding. He's just every day, new mercies. Every day, new knowledge. Every day, here and in heaven, more more and he'll never run out 
It's literally an unending capacity for him to continue to give you new mercies, new knowledge, new illumination, new uh, revelation of himself for the purpose of your joy. And so, God, give me that. Give me that then. I want that. Now, Paul is going to talk about that in verses 17 through 20 in two ways, kind of two different facets of divine illumination, two different facets of being able to say, yes, more, please. And the two ways he does it is to know God more and to know the gospel more, to know God more and to know the gospel more. So let's look at how he talks about to know God more. You can see it in verse 17. Um, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation by the knowledge of him. The knowledge of him. So he wants us to have a greater knowledge of him. He wants us to know God better. Now, as I think about, especially when this is in terms of prayer, one of the few prayers I think that we pray for ourselves and for other people is that they would know God more, right? What I think we do is, we know the specific needs of people and ourselves, and we pray for those. I'm not saying this is bad, but this is what the predominant kind of working of our prayers is. We know what our needs are, and so we pray for those needs. And then we even know the cures, and we pray for those cures. God, I know my needs, and here they are, and I know how you could cure those things. So here's my needs, and here's those cures that if you could just get on, like that would be great. So could you just work this need and get this cure because I know how to do it, and so I just can't do it so that you can. So here they are, right? That seems to be the predominant nature of the way we pray. That's okay. He tells us to do that, but not only to do that, right? Paul, who spent three years with these people, knew all the intimate details of their life. He knew everything that they needed, and he could have prayed those specific needs and specific cures. But the thing that he prays for is not that, but he takes the big step back and he says, God, I pray that they just know you. I pray that they just know you, that they would know the immeasurable riches, that they would know the unbelievable hope and power that you've called them. You can see here, as he said, that they may know, have a greater knowledge of him, give you a spirit of wisdom of revelation and knowledge of him. So D.A. Carson, diagnosing the church, says the greatest need in the church today, the only thing that we need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. And Paul, as he knew the specific needs of these Ephesians, doesn't pray for that. He prays for something much more broad, and I would say possibly much more overlooked. Help them know you, God. Help them know you. So his diagnosis for the Ephesians, and thus really the diagnosis of our own hearts, is that we need to know God better. Your current circumstance right now is important to God. It's, it is. I'm not minimizing it. Your greatest need and your greatest circumstance right now is important. But the answer to that, that resides deep in your heart, the answer to that is that you have a deeper knowledge of God. You have a deeper knowledge of God. As Paul said in Philippians 3.10, that I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. One day, uh, somebody asked Spurgeon, uh, he was talking on this, uh, and this is what he said about his people knowing God. He says, I go back to my home after church many a time, mourning that I cannot preach my master even as my, I myself know him. And what I know of him is actually just a very little com compared to the matchlessness of his grace. Would that I knew him more and that I could tell it better. This is what might be the greatest need of our own hearts is that we would know him more. So do you pray for this and do you pray this for others?
God, help my husband and wife. Help them know, not mine, but, you know, I'm in your place. Help my wife know you more. You would pray, help my wife or husband know you more. Help my children know you more. Now, how can that happen? How can that happen that we would know him more? He tells us right there in the text, verse 17, that he needs to give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. So this is all a work of the Holy Spirit. The divine illumination that we pray for and that we need is only from the Lord. As he says, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the knowledge of him having, here it is, the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is what we need, the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Stott explains this. He says the eyes of our heart. In biblical usage, the heart is the whole inward self comprised as a mind as well as our emotion. This is the inner eyes which need to be open before we can grasp God's truth. Remember the song, Open the Eyes? I'm going to play it for you. Open the... No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. But that's what we're saying, Lord. Uh, That was bad. So open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. He's just capturing this song right here. Whoever wrote that, I don't know who it was. Back in the 80s or whatever. Like, that's just praying Ephesians 1.18 for himself and for other people. We need to have the eyes of our heart open so that we can know him better. So the first kind of facet of divine illumination is to know God. But the second facet of divine illumination is not just to know God better, but to know, know and understand the gospel better. And by knowing the gospel, we'll know God better. But he does want us to know what he's done to save us. <clears throat> and he shows us that in verses um, 18 and following into verse 20. And he, he, there's three parts of this gospel that he wants you to know. I mean, there's numerous parts of the gospel. But in this text, there's three parts of the gospel that he wants you to know. And they're all delineated or enumerated by the word what. So as soon as you see the word what, you see, it, you see one. And so he tells us, having the eyes of your hearts in light, they may know, here it is, what, the first part of the gospel we can know, what is the hope to which he has called you? Second part of the gospel we can know, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The third part of the gospel we can know, and what are the immeasurable greatness? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the hand, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So not only do we need to know to God, we need to know his gospel. And as we know his gospel, there's three specific things that we can know about the gospel. Now there's way more, right? But here's Paul telling us when I pray and I want you to know the gospel, I pray these three things. These are great things for you to pray. Know what is the hope of that which he is called, what is the riches of the glorious inheritance and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. Let's look at those three things specifically. The one is the hope of his calling. Paul is saying that he wants them to know the hope of his calling. Now, he's already told us in one five and one eleven the calling part, that they've been chosen before the foundations of the world. We said that last week. You could go to Genesis one one where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you could go above that and you could say, Chosen before the foundations of the earth, dot, dot, dot. In him the beginning was the beginning. So before Genesis 1-1 even happened, God had already called those who would, who would be his and chose them before the foundations of the earth. He already told us that. But that's not what Paul wants you to focus on, on the chosen part, right? He don't want you to just focus on the calling. He wants you to focus on the hope of our calling. See what he says? He wants you to know the hope of our calling. So what does that mean when we say we focus on the hope of our calling? Focusing on the hope of our calling is focusing on the glorious future that we will have one day with Jesus in heaven. This is the glorious 
hope of our calling. That we will be with Jesus forever in heaven. I mean, this is utterly beautiful. Now, this isn't to be confused. Hope isn't to be confused with wishful thinking. That we just really hope it's going to happen one day. That's not what he's saying when he says the hope of your calling. Instead, the hope of our calling is the absolute assurance of real reality. Is real reality a thing? Real reality. That's what we're saying. We are hoping in this real reality that we will one day be with him. And we are uh, focusing in and thinking on it that we would know more about our calling, the hope of our calling, when we think about the gospel. Now, the key question is this. Why would Paul pray for, and therefore God want us, to know this piece of the gospel? Why would he want you to think on that, this futuristic time of the hope of our calling? Sinclair Ferguson diagnoses the answer perfectly. He says this, Because how we live the Christian life now is in great measure determined by how we think about the future. The reason why we focus on the hope of our calling is because it dramatically changes the way you live right now for Jesus. Whenever you think about what will be like and how glorious it will be in heaven one day, it changes everyday decisions on how you live right now. That temptation, that money you give, that decision you make about families, that decision that you make about jobs, that decision about going to college, should I marry this person, should I not? All of these decisions, which are all important, are always determined largely about because of the way we think about the future. And if we're thinking about the future in terms of this glorious hope of the calling that we have in Christ, then it absolutely determines about how we live now. So Christianity and the way we live now is very much based on a future pointing, a future hoping in faith. And he wants us to pray for for other people for that and pray that for our own hearts, that we know the hope of our calling. But also, he wants us to think about and pray about the riches of our inglorious inheritance in the saints. If you were here last week, we talked about inheritance last week. If you remember in verse 11 and verse 14, he talked about the inheritance. And Paul leaves this word inheritance ambiguous on purpose. So it can be thought of in two different ways. The first way is kind of the obvious one. You know, like, come into my office. Here's your inheritance, son. $20 million. Get out of here. You know, like, we could think of it that way. Like, God will give us an inheritance one day. When we get to heaven, we're like, here's my room and here's my treasures. But, like, the treasures are Jesus, not, like, you're not getting gold or whatever. So, like, you could think of it that way. The inheritance is that we are now receiving fully heaven, Christ, etc. That God gives us an inheritance. But the text is ambiguous enough as we read it. That if you look at the little note that you have, mine's verse if you look at the very bottom, note five, it says, or until God redeems his possession. So the second way to think about the inheritance is not that we receive an inheritance, but instead that we, the church, are God's inheritance or heritage. Same kind of word in the Septuagint, heritage, her- her- heritage, that the church is actually God's inheritance, that God's the recipient of the inheritance and it's the church and that he is drawing us in to be his heritage, a, 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 a signpost of the of the great grace which he's bestowed upon mankind. So you can even read it here. It says it ambiguously in the text today, whenever we're looking at verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance, not to, in the saints. So it's like, which one is it? In the saints, like, because they received it, or in the saints that's inherently in them because they've been saved that the Lord will get. Yeah, it's that one. So that's the way we think about it. To know the riches of his inheritance is is intentionally still thinking about it both ways. That we are going to receive a glorious inheritance 
and that we are also God's inheritance. And either way, in both ways, this is why it's important. Sinclair Ferguson says this, seeing this and understanding this profound, amazing reality that we will one day uh, receive the, the glorious inheritance and that we are the glorious inheritance of God is this. Seeing this brings a deep sense of dignity and security. Dignity because the great God in whom our everlasting treasure is found treasures us as his inheritance. We treasure him, but he treasures us at his, as his heritage. But also security because God who treasures us will guard his treasure. And we are absolutely assured of our salvation. So this heritage is absolutely amazing. It's just huge for us to know more and more the blessings of the gospel, that we can understand the riches of this inheritance. What it's going to be like one day when we get there, we have no clue. Like, our mind simply cannot uh, have the capacity to bring into view what heaven is going to be like. It's completely impossible for you to imagine it. What you're thinking right now pales. Picture something greater, not even close. Even more, not close. Like, we, we can't... Com- Conceive of it. But we are told some things. Just picture with me this. We're told, this is John Stott, that we shall see God and his Christ in heaven. We'll literally see God. We will see the Christ. And in that, as we see Christ, we will worship him. And this, he calls it the beatific vision, this kind of beautiful transforming, beatific, beautiful transforming, this beautiful transforming vision will be a transforming vision, so much so that when, we, when he appears to us, number one, we will become like him. Our bodies, our sinful bodies, will then be transformed to be transformed in his glorious body. But not only that, also, not only will we be like him, we will also be like him in character. So our, our bodies will be transformed to be made like his, but also our character will be transformed to be like his. Perfect. You, I mean, imagine this one day, that you literally will never have one thought towards sin. It won't even enter your mind to do one level of minutia of sin. The beatific vision transforms us in such a way that we never choose and never even think to choose to sin. All we do is have a transformed likeness into Christ for his glory. And we shall, in that moment, enjoy perfect fellowship with God and with each other. God's inheritance. He goes on to say, God's inheritance will not be a little private party for each individual. It's not like God calls you into his office and says, here you go. Get out there. Good job. Who's next? It's not that, right? It's instead, God's inheritance will be not be a little private party for each individual. But instead, as we're still trying to picture the glorious inheritance that we receive with all the saints, he says this, but rather it will be among the saints as we join in on that great multitude written in Revelation 5, which no man could ever number or count that is from every nation, from every tribe and every people and every tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. That's what it will be like. And whatever you're picturing right now is nothing like it will be like. It's infinitely more glorious. This is the inheritance, the riches of the inheritance that we receive when we're in heaven one day. Think about that. Pray that for others. This is amazing. The last thing is this. 
He also tells us when we think about the gospel, it's not just the hope that we're called, not just the riches of the glorious inheritance, but also the immeasurable greatness of his power. And you, you look here, Paul's grasping as many words as he can describe to use and symbolize like unbelievable strength, power. You can see it there. It's um, the immeasurable greatness of his power. That's the word dunamis. That's where we get our word dynamite from. It's the immeasurable power of his greatness towards us who, who believe according to his that working is like the infinite energy with his great might. It even says FUD, talking about strength. Like, lots of words he's trying to grasp. He doesn't use FUD there. I'm not powerful. It would be more like Adam or Brian or whatever. But it's like, like it's, it's infinite, unbelievable strength when he's trying to grasp it as many terms as he can to build up into this big, giant strength pile of words to help you see the unbelievable power that God has. He has greatness of power towards us. See it. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working or energy of his working and his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead? We have that for us in here. And here's the amazing part. As he piles upon these words to try to help us understand great might, dunamis, immeasurable greatness, energy, he's helping you see that all this power is made available to you the unbelievably weak. The unbelievably weak. We are. We are not strong. We are unbelievably weak. And in the gospel, he gives us this unbelievable power. And this power means that now we have the ability to live the way that Jesus has always intended us to live. And we, In this larger sense of this text, we need to pray that we can know this power every day. We need to pray that for other people. That they can know this power every day. That means your greatest worry, your greatest fear, your greatest temptation, your greatest doubt, all of those are inferior to the superior power of Christ Jesus working in you. That temptation is nothing to Jesus. That doubt is nothing to Jesus. That fear is nothing compared to the superior power of Jesus in your life. So why don't we live like it? Why is it that we struggle? Tony Marita diagnoses it by saying this. Why do we fail often to rely on this mighty power? The exalted view of self and the diminished view of God is why we fail to understand uh, the power that we have. And it should be the reverse. The diminished view of self, not to the point where it's self-degradation, I'm the worst, I don't know why Jesus would love me, but not to, to the point of making sure that we exalt God. The exalted view of God to where we have our right understanding of who we are in light of Him. When that's reversed then we won't have a, uh, a walking around of not being able to walk in his power. Because he goes on to say, the evil one hate us. They hate our faith. The evil one and his minions hate our church. They hate our Christian marriages. They hate our mission. And they uh, want to destroy us. And that's why we must lean into Christ and pray for his resurrection power to continually strengthen us and empower us then to live for God's glory. The resurrection of Jesus is the thing that supplies this power to us. That's what it says in the text. That he worked whenever he raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection power is the thing that supplies this to us. And he closes this section on, this is what you've done. I want to know you more. And he moves into, thank you, Jesus. He closes it by reminding us that the resurrection power is the thing that gives us this power. And so the second part is asking God for divine illumination. 
that we can know more about God and we can know more about his gospel. And then he goes into the third one, this little third section. Number three, you can go ahead and put it up. Number three, praise God for the exaltation of Jesus. So while the first two are seriously focused on us, kind of focused on, I need, thank, I need to thank you for what you've done in me and I want to know more. He removes us away from thinking about us and now he just prays. Now focus all your heart and mind on Jesus. Stop thinking about yourself. Close this prayer with just focusing on Christ and what he's done. And he wants to exalt Christ here in this last part of his prayer. And as he does that, he, he, he exalts Christ in four different ways. Exalts Christ in four different ways. They're all in the text. You can see them right there. He exalts Christ because of his, of his resurrection. You can see that in 20, that when he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, that's his resurrection. He exalts Christ in his enthronement, and he seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. He exalts Christ in his supremacy, where he says that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he also exalts Christ in his headship, over the church, and you can see that in 22, when he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, that's us. So as he removes the focus on us and puts it all on Jesus, he exalts Jesus in four different ways. Resurrection, enthronement, supremacy, and headship. Let's, let's look at those so that our hearts and our minds will then exalt Christ. Hear this section with the heart and mind that you won't one day pray for this. But instead, right now, as you hear this, your heart will become inflamed by the Holy Spirit and you will exalt, right there in your cushioned seat, you will exalt the name of Jesus. Yes, I love that about Jesus. Yes, praise you because of your resurrection. He says it first about Christ's resurrection. We praise Jesus because of the resurrection. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, in a kind of a summary statement of 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection... We don't have anything. We are most to be pitied. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. Without the resurrection, you have no life and you have nothing. But because of the resurrection, life does have meaning. Life has infinite meaning. And so we praise Jesus because of Christ's resurrection. Because now, because of the resurrection, our lives have infinite meaning. So we praise Jesus, but he has the power to defeat Satan's sin and death in the resurrection. And therefore, he delivers that power to us. And we have this immeasurable power to live for Christ. So we must meditate on that, that he's been raised from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. But also, more than that, we need to praise Christ for his enthronement. He's been seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now, the right hand uh, means where God's power. It's not that God doesn't like lefties, which he doesn't really like lefties. He likes right-handed people. I'm just kidding. That's just a joke. He loves lefties. He loves them all. He makes us all the same. But like he, 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 this right hand means when something's at the right hand of the father is signifying the power, the authority, the rule and the reign. If someone is at the right hand of someone, it means that that person has been given the rule and reign and the authority over all things. And so we are praising Christ because of his enthronement, which is at the right hand of the Father. Now, I want to note a couple things about this because this is unbelievable. This is just literally remarkable. First, when he says he's seated him at the right hand, is that he's pointing to Psalm 110.1 and numerous other texts where it says this, saying, this Jesus Christ has fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
And so when he says he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he's saying, remember the Old Testament and all the prophecies of this Messiah? This Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. He's not just trying to paint this kind of scenic picture to try to make you feel charmed by like, Jesus is so great, he sits on a throne. It is that, but it's infinitely more than that. He's not just trying to paint a nice little picture. Instead, he's trying to point all these people's minds back to the scriptures and us back to the scriptures and say, that from Genesis 3.15 at the Proto-Evangelium, the coming one that's going to destroy the serpent, all the way through the entire Old Testament, that king, that Messiah is Jesus. He's the one fulfilling all those prophecies. He's the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. And he's the one that has rule and reign and authority over everything. So he's trying to point you to see that. But also, this is remarkable. Notice what he says. He's seated at the right hand of Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Notice that language? In the heavenly places. And this is what he's going to say about us. He's, he's setting us up for chapter 2 next week. I'm going to give away the whole bank next week. But I'm going to go ahead and get, tell you one thing. I want you to notice in chapter 2, verse 6, what it says about us right now. 2, 6. And notice the tenses. Please notice this is not future. Okay. Chapters 1 through 3 is about our position in Christ. This is your current position in Christ. You, you don't feel like it sometimes, but 2-6 is your current position in Christ, which is Jesus' current position right now in heaven. 2-6. He raised us up with him. By grace we've been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's not will seat. That's not will raise. That he has seated. And he has raised. Positionally, that's who you are right now in Jesus. Now, one day, you'll actually live there. But positionally, this is what's happening right now. 2-6, that we have been seated, raised and seated with Jesus where he is. He's right now raised and seated in the heavenly places. And positionally, that's where we are. So the enthronement of Jesus is literally everything for, for, for the Christian. It's literally everything. Because... What's true of us now is that we are also, we're not on the throne. It's not like me and Jesus like, hey, let me make a little couple calls. It's not like this. He's still running the whole show, right? But we are also seated in the heavenly places as he's seated in the throne of the heavenly places. Positionally, that's where we are. And so praise Jesus because of his enthronement. That he is, Hebrews 1, 3, upholding the word, world by the word of his power. And he is seated on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning above everything. Not only that. He, he, uh, Paul points to this, this power of enthronement at the very end of verse 21 when he says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Remember that Paul's a Roman citizen, and in that first century, like Rome ruled everything. And so Paul's saying, Jesus is enthroned, not only in this little piddly Roman army who thinks they control the whole world, which they did at that time, control the whole world, but not just in this age, but also in the age to come. I don't even know history in the future. I don't know if there's going to be a government that controls the whole world then. But you know what? Whatever's going to happen in this and all, Jesus is still ruling and enthroned over everything for all time forever. Praise Jesus, because that's the case of Christ. He is enthroned and not just the king of Rome, but the king of the whole world, not just in the first century, but forever. Let your heart, let your heart just exalt right now. The third thing is the supremacy of Christ. So when we start with verse 21, and it says, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion. It's trying to signal to us just how unbelievable the supremacy of Christ is. 
So I want to do my best to try to illustrate this. When we see far above, I want you to, I want you to feel the depth of far above. Let's say that I was able to bring Michael Jordan to the church today. Not Michael Jordan, you know, 60 when he's in all the people's things where he cries, right? But like back, back, you know, in his prime, Michael Jordan, before, before he went to baseball, Michael Jordan, where he just killed it. You know, that's like what, 93 or something like that. All right. And I was to get Michael Jordan here at York Baptist Association. And we walked out to the parking lot and there was a full, full, uh, even just a half court. Right. And I was going to play Michael Jordan one-on-one. All right. I want you to think about the score. <laughs> I want you to think about what that game would look like when he beat me 21, nothing. And every shot I even tried to took got thrown out into the grass. Right. And he just made fun of me and like, ah, you can't make nothing. Wham, throw it. Like, so the, the far above nature of his athletic ability and destroying of me in that game is, is pretty, it's pretty broad. It's not like I would just kind of, maybe I'd get a couple of shots in and some points. No, I would get destroyed. Right now think of that. And I want you to think about the far above nature of related to Christ far above anything ever that could ever compare. Not just that weak illustration of Jordan smashing me in basketball and all of you. And I would smash you in basketball, but he would, he would definitely smash all of us. Right. But think about, think about this unbelievable far above Jesus above anything that's ever. So in some weak way, I'm trying to illustrate far above all rule, all rule, anybody that's ever ruled. Jesus is far above all rulers, far above anybody that's ever been authority. He's far above that, far above anybody that's ever had any power ever. He's far above that, far above anybody that's ever had dominion over any part of land. He, he created land. He's far above that, above every name, above that is ever named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Anything. Jesus is absolutely supreme. As Abraham Kuyper has once been noted to say, there is not one square inch of the world that Jesus does not look down from heaven and claim with these words. This is mine. Not one square inch of the entire world. Praise Jesus because of his supremacy. He is supreme over all things. And also we praise Jesus because of his headship in the church. And he put all things under his feet and gave them as, here it is, head over all things to the church, which is his body. That's us. Remedy Church, every church, Park Baptist Church, Northside Baptist Church, uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church, every church in Rock Hill, every church in the world. He's the head of every church and he's the head of the church, both local and universal. He is the church. He is the head over the church. Now, more coming on what the church does in Ephesians 4. We'll get to that later. But right now we're exalting Christ because he's the head. He's the head, which means this. The body can go nowhere and do nothing without the head. We, his people, are completely dependent upon Jesus, the head. We are completely dependent upon him. Let that settle in on you right now. You and I and we can literally do nothing without Jesus. We can do nothing. We are entirely dependent on him. Therefore, he deserves all the praise and exaltation. Because we are absolutely dependent upon him. It's never the reverse. Jesus is not absolutely dependent upon us to do anything. He can do whatever he wants without us. He chooses to do things with us. We are completely dependent upon him to do anything. 
And he fills us, as it says, he's the head over, to, over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all, he fills us with his presence. This is how we do anything. It's because he fills us with his presence. I want to conclude with this description of the church that Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, here then is a glorious description of Christ and his people. Creator and conquering Lord, head of the church, filled with the fullness of God, filling all things and ruling all things for the sake of this body, which is his fullness. The church is the community which Christ, in whom God's fullness dwells, now indwells, filling it up, as it were, with his presence, flooding it with his grace, conforming it to his image continually until it is completely filled with his likeness. This is what it means to be a member of a church. This is what it means to be a member of his church. These are the privileges by which we enter into the church, into being his body by God's grace. We need our eyes open to just see how rich we are. So as we're thinking about prayer for others and ourselves, let's pray this prayer in Ephesians 1. God, thank you for what you've done. Let me know you more and thank you for Jesus. Let's pray. God, as I pray for my friends right now, I want to pray those three things. Thank you for the grace that you have shown to them, that they have faith in you and a love for the saints. And I pray that that would be continually happening in the life of this church. And God, I pray that you would help us know you more. Help us know you more, God. The depth and riches and knowledge of you and help us know your gospel more. What it means to be called by you. What it means to be your inheritance. What it means to be filled with your power. I pray that you help us every day understand more and more of the gospel. And Jesus, we exalt you. We worship you. We are absolutely stunned by your grandeur and your absolute power. We worship you because of the resurrection. We worship you because you are enthroned in the heavenlies. We worship you because you are supreme. And Jesus, we worship you because you are the head of the church of which we are totally dependent. God, I pray that these, these things that we've learned in this text today would happen in our lives and that we would be a praying church that prays these things for ourselves and for our people. We pray this in Jesus' name.